Hello, everybody. This is a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman, coming at you from Deerfield Beach, Florida, um, right before we get smacked by uh, Mr. Dorian, the, the hurricane that is crushing the Bahamas at the moment. Very sad. Uh, but yeah, so a, a quick, you know, pre-storm show recording uh, was was in the works. So uh, I've got a great guest on today, but before I introduce him, I'm going to go through the uh, real lyric of the day. This is coming from Kanye West from his album um, 808s and Heartbreak, uh, one of my favorite Kanye albums. This is the song Welcome to, Heart, uh, Welcome to Heartbreak. So he says, dad cracked a joke, all the kids laughed, but I couldn't hear him all the way in first class. Chase the good life my whole life long. Look back on my life and my life gone. Where did I go wrong? So there's one of his verses, just a, a quick verse in the song. And, you know, kind of what I got out of that was, you know, someone, uh, you know, of his stature where it's sort of, you know, we see sort of the celebrity life of, you know, glitz and glam and, and this chase to kind of acquire material possession. He kind of, uh, like he kind of comments on that you know that that desire maybe not you know bringing him happiness i mean look back on my life my life gone where did i go wrong maybe some some sort of self-doubt with you know he's he's looking at uh you know just a dad making a joke you know with his kids just kind of a very simple pleasure in life um and maybe seeing how that you know just something like that could actually make you a lot more happy potentially than all you know, material wealth and, and a lot of those things that are, you know, we uh, so commonly hear just in, in a lot of pop culture, but rap in particular, I think. So that's what I got out of that lyric. But now to introduce, um, I got a special guest on here. Um, this is my boy, Carl Wallenkampf. Carl is a cold brew enthusiast, cold brew master, as far as uh, brewing his own as well as I've come to learn right now, um, a, a pizza and salsa man as well. So um, kind of a, a, Carl, you'd probably call yourself a, a renaissance man, right? A man of, of many trades. <laughs> yeah, the, the rebirth hasn't been too painful for anyone, hopefully. But uh, yeah, I would love to be a renaissance man. There we go. Well, Carl is uh, uh, you know, a medical student right now. You're in what year again? I just finished my third year. Finished your third year. Okay, so we we were just talking that so we met after your sum, uh your first year in the summer, uh, yeah. you came up to to Eugene, Oregon, where I was going to college at the University of Oregon at the time, and you uh, you were kind of interning in a research lab that I was yeah. interning at over the summer, yeah. and ah uh, uh, you know going over heart rate variability, you know learning kind of. <laughs> in-depth mechanisms and uh you know studying the heart and kind of stress resilience so that was some cool stuff but yeah man i i think uh you know we had some great conversations back then and you know we you know started hanging outside the the lab a little bit i yeah. wish you had longer there because you know yeah i, I had some too. fun times hanging out yeah me too i uh always pre-invite back to back over to my place my um, the lake is always open in the summertime. So next time we're both in Oregon together, 
we gotta we gotta hit that uh, lake again. Oh, I'll I'll certainly take you up on that without a doubt, without a doubt. Dude, you killed the wakeboarding that day, man. Oh awesome. man, I tried. You know, after that, it was like the first half of the day was like that learning curve, like where I was like, yeah. am I gonna stand up? Like, <laughs> but then once you once you once you're actually standing up, yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, but you're showing me the ropes, you know, taught me how to how to wakeboard a little bit. So appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, my pleasure. But yeah, so you know, I'm really happy to have uh, Carl. You know, happy to have you on the show today. And I kind of wanted to start off with, you know, uh, kind of talking about your, you know, choice, um, your journey through med school, because, um, you know, I remember talking to a lot of people in, in, you know, the kind of the biology and human phys courses that I was doing. And, you know, a lot of people who were like very much on the fence about med school and, you know, yeah. it's like it, you have to make a very serious decision and a serious commitment, you know, to do that um, yeah. kind of at a very young age. So I'm curious your, your thoughts on that and kind of, if you could kind of tell us, you know, where your you know, kind of what spurred you into, into that decision. Yeah, so the the thing that mostly spurred me on to the decision is I'm uh, I'm blessed to have um, a really encouraging dad in my life who is a physician, and he decided to be a doctor back in the day because in the um, in the '60s, I think it was in the '60s, he had an uncle who was a doctor, and he had a pool in his backyard. And so my dad thought, well, you know what, there's a pool in the backyard, I'll, you know, I'll try to be a doctor. And, you know, back then it was a really good gig because student loan debt wasn't the way it is then, you know, so he was actually able to get into med school and pay his way by working. You know, the game is very different now because now you can't just pay for college by working a job in the summertime. You can't pay for med school by working a job in the summertime. Yeah. During the like, you better have no, a really good job. You better be making like six <laughs> figures if you're trying to do that. <laughs> exactly. You need to uh, you need to already be a professional, you know, and already have a job in order to pay to go to school. But um, the reason I decided is my my dad would tell me stories about the um, the time that he had in the emergency department. So he'd tell me um, stories about patients he had seen. He obviously wouldn't use their names or identifying uh, characteristics, but he would uh, he would share things with me. And those stories about being able to help people um, and being those crucial moments in their lives were just uh, so inspiring to me. So that's kind of the path that I really chose to follow early on. That was high school. Uh, college tripped me up a little. I wasn't so sure. I Loved the humanities, reading, um, literature. I did a Bachelor of Arts in Humanities. And so that sort of pulled me away a little bit. But I decided I really wanted to affirm. And I thought that um, medicine did a few things. One is, is it was deeply practical. You know, I love the humanities. And I think they are of supreme value in and of themselves. But I love the idea of the practicality of medicine. I mean, you know, someone can be suffering and in pain and that, um, someone that you can be a part of uplifting them and make them better. Uh, another thing is, is I love the complexity of it. It's something that I knew I would never master like an entire lifetime. So I thought, you know, what a challenge, you know, that'd be a, an amazing thing to do. And the third thing is, is it's, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a profession. So it's not, 
it's not simply a you know a job necessarily that you you clock in and clock out, but it turns into kind of a way of life, and it turns into something that's both at your job and outside of your job. You know, you let people know that you're a physician, and they can ask you things, they can feel free to approach you, and um, it's kind of this holistic lifestyle that I really wanted to follow. And it'll be a way to apply the humanities, a way to apply what I love about psychology and about people along with this practical medicine. So that's sort of what led me to choose medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly it, it becomes like a new choice every day when you're in medical school. Uh -huh. <laughs> Med school will beat you down. <laughs> uh, so I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's awesome, man, that you found a way to kind of integrate all of these, you know, various interests of yours into, you know, a career that that I think, you know, sounds like you're super passionate about. And I think that's awesome. Um, as far as, I, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, your dad kind of telling you these stories. Was this you were saying like high school was kind of when those I, conversations were happening or was that earlier as a kid? It was pretty early. He uh, he was um, this was actually like in grade school in grade okay. school. He would, uh, um, every now and then he would um, come into my room and put me to bed and then he would like, like scratch my back and tell me stories about the emergency department. And like to me, that was ideal because it's sort of like all the people who like watching Grey's Anatomy and ER. So you get that, but you also get a back rub at the same time. So like Man. I do that. <laughs> yeah. Who's going to complain about that? Yeah. <laughs> that, right. So you were kind of opened up to the possibilities of, of what it would be like to be a doctor. And did that, did that sort of interest you at, at that young age? Did you kind of hear those stories and be like, wow, like I really want to be like, you know, like my dad in this way? Yeah. It didn't hit me. I wanted to, you know, I, I back then I was I was inoculated in the uh, the beauty of gender roles. So I was like, oh, I could be a fireman, I could be a policeman, I could be an engineer, you know, <laughs> all the little boy things. Yeah. Um, so I, I ran through those like in a little pop, 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 and I enjoyed playing all of this in my own life. But um, pretty quickly, um, it was like third grade when I started telling people I wanted to be a doctor, and. Um, for a long time, it, uh, that was just kind of a cool thing to say. You know, you could tell people, I want to be a doctor, and everyone thinks you're an amazing person, even though you haven't done anything yet. So um, I'd recommend, actually, to anyone to tell people you're going to be a doctor, because everyone's really impressed, even if you aren't going to be one. Uh, yeah, it's probably <laughs> like, a, like a good idea, you know, if, if you're, you know, significant other, you know, if your girlfriend, you, you know, yeah. is going, taking you to meet her family, that's probably a, a good line to bring up, right? <laughs> over a lot of mothers with the line i i'm going to be a doctor someday i can uh, imagine yeah <laughs> <laughs> the problem is is i think every child has uh every child has an innate desire to rebel against their parents so you have to be careful winning over parents because then the children don't want to please their parents and so then you lose the person so mm, there's, yeah there's that <laughs> right right we all have our good reasons for being something and our bad reasons for being something. And I have, I have a few of them. Sure. Sure. So that's, that's interesting. So it was, was it, this was towards the end of undergrad where you made the decision to apply to med school? Yeah. End of undergrad. So generally speaking, generally speaking, there's an application 
during the senior year. So you apply during the fall of your senior year. So I, okay. I pretty much decided um, during my third year of college that I was, I was going to apply. So I had to study for the MCAT, which is sort of like, you know, the SAT of, uh, for med school. So I studied for that, did that, and then, um, and then I applied, you know, and so that, and it was, uh, and then I got a call that I could go. And that was, that was a pretty good night. Good night. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm curious, I'm curious what was, uh, you know, what was going on in your brain at that point where you, you know, that when junior year of high school, where you sort of made that decision, like, I'm going to, I'm going to go and, you know, apply to med school. Were you, you know, kind of from that time up until when you actually, you know, took the test, you know, got in, you know, found a, a med school that you were going to go to, was there, was there much, um, kind of, uh, hesitations or like you know thinking oh maybe I should have maybe I should still do something else or were you kind of like just locked into that route I think I think before I applied because I you know I applied senior my my senior year of college I think there was a fair amount of hesitation during college um, because you know it's it's not necessarily a cakewalk to get in um, and so there were times when I got bad grades and there was a year where I was, man, I was struggling. Like it, it was a hard year. I was, uh, had a, a job. I was, um, I went to a, a religiously affiliated school, um, and I am myself a Christian. So I, I was a spiritual vice president of the student association. And one might ask what that is. And it's a person who just kind of brings in speakers and is present at like worship services, <clears throat> try to organize things things mostly like make people happy with food it's kind of the number one thing but I, I had that going on and I was um, in these organic chemistry classes and cellular biology classes and I was trying to organize like talks and meetings but then up late at night trying to count little tiny flies called drosophila mm. you know that we had mutated you know I, I don't know like drosophila is something that uh, is a type of fly that you can learn um, like genetics with. So we had all these flies that are like breeding and you're having to count like a thousand flies per night, you know, which ones are different types and that doing that for a few months, that was a time of big challenge. And, uh, and for some reason, like, you know, I, I kind of kept going with it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily recommend, um, I wouldn't say anyone has to do it. Um, but for mm -hmm. me, hold through. Right. Right. It was the, the right choice for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it seems like, you know, I think people go into it obviously with different reasons and sometimes it's more of a, you know, seems kind of more of like a, like a pressure thing, like whether they yeah. feel like pressured maybe by society because, you know, doctors are, you know, rightly so very well respected. So they're like, you know, I'm going to do this to, you know, earn a good living and, you know, maybe make my parents happy. Um, you know, which are, which are valid, you know, good, valid, uh, maybe reasons, but at the same time, maybe not the best way to actually pick a, a career when it, you know, cause you want to be doing what you are passionate about, not what you think is going to make someone else or, or, you know, society kind of at large right. happy with your decision. That's right. how I see it.
childhood. Obviously, no one no one has a perfect childhood, but um, certainly the you know the the tougher the tougher the childhood. I think what's sad is just seeing you know I feel like I don't know if you see anything with these kids, but you know just because they're so young, but you know having problems you know kind of maybe going you know when they go through school and then that kind of almost you know sets them back when it comes to actually getting out you know getting out of school and being able to live you know kind of a, a successful happy life yeah. you know because they've got all of this um this stuff to you know that's kind of on their plate that you know they shouldn't really have to be dealing with at that young age yeah, yeah. do you think i mean is that a problem you think is is increasing as far as, as like, i mean kids that young like you know wanting to kill themselves is that I mean I I'm just thinking you know when you know now we kind of in, in the state of our society where you know we're seeing all these school shootings and, and oftentimes you know it's you know kind of you know adolescents teenagers you know um you know 16 17 18 year olds who are who are the shooters oftentimes and uh I mean what's what's been you know what's gone on to kind of create this sort of almost epidemic we have in the society. And it seems like, you know, kind of, you know, rough childhood experiences can definitely take a toll. Yeah, I think, I think I, my supposition would be that this kind of thing is on the lot on the rise and that there is a net increase in like psychological disturbance compared to days of old. And there's obviously, a, you know, there's a, there's always this, like the past is, the past is better <laughs> fallacy. Um, mm-hmm. There, there was a, you know, a recent political campaign essentially founded on that idea. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, <laughs> I want to, I want to sort of distance myself from that, but I do think that there's been sort of a net increase in this. And I, I wonder, about the causes. I, w- I was just thinking while you were talking about school shootings, and the horrors that those present and about the challenges that children face. I wonder if there's, in terms of the evils that people do now, I wonder if there's been a slow distancing in people's minds between cause and effect. Um, just wondering that because of how complex society is now, we as humans are still probably about the same psychologically speaking, but we're faced with so many new challenges and so many new um, complexities. I wonder if we've started to we've started to learn a different distance between cause and effect. And what I mean by that is, imagine you are, you know, living on a farm in the I don't know, you could go 1600s or something like that. Everything, the the speed between cause and effect is very quick then. You know, if you don't do the right thing, you might die today, you know, or, you know, the next day. Or um, if you don't farm, if you don't get out there and farm today, like you could have a big problem. Um, you can't call in sick days. Um, people would have a number of children. Many of them would die from things that people will not die from now. Um, so there was a, maybe there was a familiarity with death then there was a, a, there was an understanding of like life's necessities that caused people to have more, maybe a more cohesive view of life, um, Mm -hmm. that made it so like, you know, I'm not, 
there wasn't an inclination to go out and cause carnage necessarily um, without sufficient reason. And sufficient reason, of course, could be, you know, your the sufficient reasons for causing carnage in the old days um, we think of now as barbaric. I mean, some of the wars that we, we saw in the past were like, you know, the Crusades, like that was kind of barbaric. Um, and so the reasoning there is wasn't great. But I'm just wondering if there's a difference today in people's lives that causes them to have a different value of human life or a different understanding of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that's an interesting perspective because, yeah, definitely understanding the value of a human life. I mean, since on a day-to-day basis, I feel like most of us, um, you know, today are not, you know, kind of maybe, you know, kind of walking those lines between life and death, like you may have been, you know, you were saying in the 1600s where, you know, you get sick, you know, you get pneumonia, you're probably, probably dead, right? You know, as far as today, there's, you know, pretty much, you know, the a medical um, remedy to a lot of, you know, you know, right. which were what were, you know, life threatening things before. So I think a lot of us go through life, you know, not really, you know, fearing death on a day-to-day basis, you know, except for people in those kind of professions, you know, where they, you know, soldiers or, or first responders. But yeah, I think it, and then, and then also just kind of, I mean, obviously there's like people who's bringing the violent video games and I'm not sure as far as, you know, if the studies on that, I, I haven't necessarily been kept abreast of, you know, whether, whether that is a contributor, but it certainly sort of uh, creates, I think, like a like a paradigm shift where, right. you know, it's it's more of like, you know, I mean, it's like in these games you're kind of just killing people for fun, and it's there's not really any ramification of doing so, um, right. and you don't you don't really have to like fully experience what it would be like to kill another person. Right. You just kill someone, or or you get shot, and then you just respond. Right. You just. Right. There's no, there's no punishments like there would be for a, for a right. real life kind of life death encounter. So I also wonder, you know, just different dynamics that that has kind of set up, if that has at all right. contributed to this, this problem. Right. And, you know, more broadly, just the extent to which um, people live virtual lives, I think is, may also contribute. And, mm. and the things is, is I, I think those things contribute to like child psychology, not necessarily always because those children are engaging in these behaviors, but that the people around them are, and mm. that that affects the way that they treat children. So, for example, if you have like if I'm a person who spends a lot of time, you know, in a virtual state of reality. I might not necessarily want to sit down and listen to a child because mm-hmm. children don't make a lot of sense. You know, they have very tangential brains. They're making sense of the world. They lie about stuff all the time. They tell long, long stories that like aren't true because they're, they're making sense of the world. World. They're telling narratives. You know, few people necessarily want to make the time to just sit down and just listen to a kid mm-hmm. to play with a kid and let the kid determine what the game is and what the rules are. Um, and then simultaneously, many people don't have time just purely from an economic standpoint. I mean, you can't fault, you know, a mother of three for not having enough time to sit down and individually read to each of her children. You know, so mm-hmm. I think some, 
some of the some of the things that are going on in society negatively affect children just by proximity to them. Not, not necessarily that kids are engaging in these behaviors, but the, the fallout of others' engagement. Right, right. And I think it often kind of creates this cycle where it kind of it can kind of get passed down generations, you know, where if you're a kid, you know, where you've you've witnessed certain certain things or your parents treat you a, a certain way, I think, you know, we've seen that that's kind of more likely to to repeat itself, no matter even if you kind of want it to change and want to be a different parent. I think oftentimes people, um, you know, kind of fall back into the habits of at least I've kind of heard, you know, I can't speak from from personal experience. I'm not a not a father, but you know, people just talking about, you know, falling back kind of in the habits of, of their parents and, and some of yeah. the negative things. So I think it, it definitely um, kind of other people and, and especially adults obviously play a huge role in kind of shaping and, and molding, you know, our brains as, as kids where we're so impressionable. You know, mm-hmm. we, we take in everything and we we analyze how, you know, all these people are, are doing things. And, you know, if they're not paying attention to us, you know, we, we wonder, you know, is it because I'm not, you know, lovable or something? Like, even if it's, even if the real reason might be, you know, the, the mom has to, you know, work right. to, to whatever, you know, 40 hour jobs or whatever, um, you know, to, to economically support the kid, the kid could still kind of be under the, the misunderstanding that, you know, the mom doesn't, isn't spending time because she, you know, yeah. doesn't, doesn't care, doesn't love the kid, right? Like, right. I think it, it could be hard to kind of understand some of the reasons that parents are doing the things that they do, you know, when we're kids. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, hopefully kids realize that soon enough to forgive their parents, you know, right? as they grow older. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, they're doing the best they can, you know, most always, I think. And, and, and as a kid, it's like, sort of like, you're like, oh, you could have done better. But, but I think (laughs) that maybe at least kind of as I've matured, I feel like, you know, you get to, to more of a point of like, you know, kind of mutual understanding and respect and and realizing that they really did, you know, do the best that they could have, you know, in the situation they were in, um, whatever that may have been. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's definitely maybe, you know, something you kind of realize, you know, with, with maturing, you know, maybe not always right, you know, a parent right away. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I wanted to sort of transition the conversation into something, um, you know, you had previously told me, and I don't know why this had had sort of stuck in my head for all these years, because this was back a few years ago, we had had a, a great conversation, I think, you know, on the car ride back yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when you're bringing me back to Eugene after, after we went wakeboarding yeah. and you said something that, that just stuck in my head, which was about, it was basically, and I don't know how, how much you remember this, but you're basically talking, um, we had a long conversation, but we were talking about how, and you were talking about how, you know, intelligence in a person is really reflected kind of by their humor. Do you sort of remember mm-hmm. talking about that? You know, it, it's been <laughs> a while. That sounds like that sounds like something I might say. And the the reason I say that is I, I get 
I think my dad may have said that to me once. Maybe my mom may have said that to me once or something. But yeah, I I think I've told other people that. So I I definitely okay. think I told. That. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember that conversation. It may have come up. I don't know we were talking about we were talking about friends and we were talking to, I I probably brought up a conversation about romantic interests because that's you know that's something that I often bring up in conversation. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I do think the reason I think that humor has a, a lot of correlation with intelligence is to me um, humor is about making. Um, Humor is about making a novel connection between different two different things that is that is unexpected. I think a lot of mm -hmm. the unexpected is something that lends itself to humor. Um, seeing things in a new light. Um, that's sort of like the essence of puns, for example, you know, mm -hmm. which is wordplay. And a lot of people hate on puns, but I think puns are a perfect example of humor because it's a person who's recognizing a similarity between two different things if that's the sound of the word or the spelling and it like relocates two things next to each other that most people don't place there and i think that's the foundation of a lot of humor i mean if you watch talk show hosts they're just making connections all over the place between different um among a whole bunch of different subjects and that is i think an example of intelligence is you're able to network all of these different things together um or if there's a humorous way of saying something it probably it might indicate someone's thought about something for a while so i think that, that mm -hmm. might yeah answer. yeah i know that and that that is you know some of the stuff we were talking about before and yeah. you know i think about you know, you know you say something that that makes people laugh it's usually something that they haven't really heard before at least exactly mm -hmm. in those words so it is it is sort right, of something right. that's unexpected you're you're putting uh, two and two together in a new way that kind of hasn't hasn't um, been seen before by other people and that's I think why we we have that positive reaction where it's sort of like laughter in a way I feel like is, is sort of appreciated you know it's a form of appreciating yeah. you know, someone else's yeah. you know kind of creativity um, and sort of um, I don't know being a you know our moods kind of elevate yeah. because of that yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what else there is to say about that, but it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, humor. I, I, that had always stuck in my head. Cause I mean, I, I really do think that's kind of the case where, um, I think, you know, humor is such a powerful force, you know, for, for good. I don't know if, is that something you ever employ kind of, you know, as a, uh, you know, as you become a doctor with. Oh yeah, patients? absolutely. It's, it's sort of a way to, to break the ice, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Finding, I mean, obviously smiling, making people feel safe is a huge part of it, but I think a way to make people feel safe is to demonstrate a sense of humor, mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think another thing that humor, yeah, making jokes around patients is a little tricky sometimes, you know, because you don't want to, you don't want anyone to think you're not being serious about their health. Sure. But I think almost everyone can understand that like life itself isn't serious in all cases. Um, for example, you know, I'll, sometimes patients have like a, maybe a little kid or something is, is, um, is sick. Right. And say that child has a, a disease that I can pass on to someone else by touch. 
So they sometimes make us put on these huge gowns. And so you put this big gown on and then you have to put these gloves on and all this stuff. And you can like look really intimidating. But if you're able to make yourself look kind of clunky and clownish in these gowns, mm-hmm. you can you can get the child to laugh. So they're like right. expecting something scary, but you end up being funny and that can make them laugh. And I think right. thing can happen with, with physicians. You know, you make a joke about something, obviously not like necessarily about them, but you know, like you look funny. You know, that that's not great humor, but um, <laughs> you know, making someone laugh makes them comfortable. And I think it's also an acknowledgement of like the unexpected, like all of us are taken aback in some way at life and no one can really foresee everything. So we, we got to laugh about some things, but right. I, I, I use humor as a medical student, like all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely do too. Just, um, you know, seeing, cause I, I see patients, you know, doing the, the neuro treatment with them and it's, I'm not their therapist. I'm not, a psychiatrist um i'm there to do you know the treatment but the relationship often kind of it can it could just be me simply setting up the technology and leaving the room and going to set the next person up and you know sometimes it it does happen like that when people are just kind of closed off and they don't really want any you know any further interaction but but oftentimes what happens is you dealt you know develop these really kind of deep connections with people and and often it it sort of starts with you know, because at first you were just being like very professional, making sure, you know, you're you're doing everything, you know, to, to the highest, you know, degree of professionalism, really. Um, but then, you know, say they, you know, they make a joke and, and bust your balls about something and, yeah. and you're like, oh, man, like, you know, I don't necessarily <laughs> have to, you know, like, right. it, it's sort of, it's sort of, in a way, I remember when I first started this job, there was a, a patient who would d- like do that to me. And it was like, I, it, it got me to relax because I was right. so anxious and, and sort of uptight at first, just learning the job and, and sort of learning that whole dynamic of patient um, yeah. interactions, which is really kind of difficult to, to learn that. And that was something for me, you know, I sort of took that on myself and then, you, you know, tried to have tried to sort of employ that when I can, you know, sense some kind of maybe apprehension or, or people are just a little, you know, kind of closed off for whatever reason. Um, I think, you know, in addition to just making them feel, you know, safe and, and like you're, you know, really, you know, have their best interests. I think humor is an awesome way to, to kind of just show them, you know, that you're human too, that, that it's sort of a, a way to, to be like, you know, we're, we're similar, you know, like we're, we experience the same, the same things, the same humorous situations, the same, yeah. um, the, maybe the same struggles and, and to laugh about those, you know, sh- maybe common struggles, I think is, uh, is super powerful with that, you know, just as that kind of connection develops. Yeah. 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 It's showing you don't take yourself too, too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. That takes all the fun out of it. Right. I think exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah whenever i see like i mean that i've always kind of like feared that with like becoming an adult which is like <laughs> that i do that i will get to a point where i take everything so seriously and yeah. don't find the humor in things and don't you know monkey around and make jokes and like like because i feel like that's me is to just be a you know in yeah. some ways still just a rambunctious kind of teenager even though i'm not anymore but but i think right. there there's a lot of you know in addition to just like like maturing, you know, in a lot of other ways, I think it's good to like 
take some of those childish habits and and mm-hmm. keep them going through adulthood i think mm-hmm. i think it's sad when you see adults who are who kind of lose touch with their sort of kid side totally. you think totally yeah i mean i think that's a that's a sad thing just in his there's an extent to which I can respect a person who decides to be 100% professional all the time mm-hmm. um, in medicine or in other fields. Like, you know, I don't, I think a nurse or a banker or a policeman who's, you know, anyone who's just 100% serious all the time, they can be competent, they can contribute to society. Like, I applaud them for it. But at the same time, there's there's a level of competence that I think everyone needs to meet in order to make like life manageable for everyone, like everyone fulfilling all their jobs just at a certain level of competence. But there's this whole area up here that is open to us to just like hold the door open for someone, make people laugh while we're doing our jobs. And that's that to me is like that's what makes life rewarding and that's what like makes life healing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, sort of going above and beyond in the sense of, of you've fulfilled sort of your, your job obligations in a sense, but you're, you're still doing these things that maybe you don't have to, but, but you do have to, to sort of feel like you're, you're being true to yourself and, and right. right. And you mentioned something earlier, which I'm, I'm just thinking of now, which is, about how you sort of, um, I think you said this on air, about how you, you kind of take, you know, like like your your job sort of as, you know, becoming a doctor and going through med school, you know, you're happy to sort of talk to just random, it's kind of like kind of just other people about, like, like you may get off work, but you sort of still kind of mm-hmm. carry that along. Yeah. Can you expand a little on that? Yeah, I think what I'm what I'm intending by that, I think that a lot of anyone who takes their job and decides to make it into sort of a profession for them will do this. But I think one thing that is valuable, I, I remember, I you know, I've seen physicians who, in their lives, you know, they will they have a unique wealth of knowledge that not everyone gets to have. Um, and they will share that with other people. So if they, you know, if say a doctor makes it known that, you know, she's a physician, then other people might be able to say, oh, hey, you know, like I have this thing, what do you think about it? And this could be in a grocery store, this could be, you know, in a place of worship, this could be anywhere. And Obviously, I think if this physician, if she has a sense of humor, that will make her more approachable and therefore mm-hmm. better able to uh, fulfill her job. But I think being the kind of person in the way that I would like to be is the kind of person that people find approachable, that, you know, I can't solve all problems at all times. But being someone who's not just a provider of care in a work setting, but someone who makes medicine more accessible and who, who makes health more accessible like on a day-to-day basis. Um, right. Both and that by seems, example, yeah, conversation. Right. I mean, that seems like something, uh, I think, you know, and I don't, I don't know how many doctors kind of share that perspective versus, you know, I think with a lot of the rest of us, um, our work 
is is kind of disconnected you know maybe from our personal lives um maybe sometimes for the better i think it's it's good to have a little distance between the two potentially depend you know kind of depending on what you do and who you are as a person maybe but right. it's interesting though because i feel like a lot of people would would sort of want to just completely abandon their work and be like ah oh, you know you you obviously do very stressful things, you know, as a medical student, and and some people I'm assuming would want to just you know completely kind of kick back and and sort of relax in a sense. Um, so yeah. what 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 makes you have that sort of um, that that desire to get that kind of you know to to, to still be kind of serving your purpose, um, not just while you're at work. I think the desire to still be serving a purpose while not at work. I think, you know, the answer is, has to do a lot with um, the kind of, I, I'm in, I'm in an ethics class um, right now. And so we've, we talked a little bit about character ethics. Um, but I do think it has something to do with the kind of character that I or others or you try to develop, because it's not necessarily a job that makes you want to share that job with everyone or be available to everyone, but kind of a, a type of person or a way of being that, you know, you just want to be out there being available to others to, you know, to help, to help other people. So I think that's part of what drives me. Medicine is uniquely, um, maybe not uniquely, because I think you can do it with anything, but, um, you know, medicine has a position of you know, almost everyone will have some kind of illness. And so almost everyone will have some kind of question. So being available and open to talk about that is, you know, is something that's easy in medicine. But um, I just, I like, I'm a kind of person who likes talking about things. I like sharing interesting information with other people. So it follows naturally from my personality too. Mm -hmm. so. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things I, I kind of find most rewarding, you know, about my job is, I do, and I don't think I've, I mentioned this to you, I do these um, neuropsych education groups where mm -hmm. I'm basically leading sort of a, a class, um, sort of sometimes a lecture, more so kind of a discussion. Um, but it's sort of, I feel like in a sense, like uh, my way of sort of like, I can like do all this research or, you know, sometimes I'll yeah. talk about heart rate variability and how, you know, it's, you know, kind of a, an indicator of, of, of resilience, you know, to stress mm -hmm. and, you know, talk about different, you know, different things um, that people can do, you know, that improves their heart rate variability or, um, bless you, um, or, you know, with, with, uh, you know, just other, I'm very, you know, I read a lot about, you know, kind of diet, nutrition and the brain. And I feel like it's, it's, it's my favorite part of the job, honestly, is probably kind of just being able to sort of impart my knowledge and to, like distill yeah. that, you know, because I spend hours, you know, whether it's, re you know, reading books or research papers. And, and oftentimes it's like, you know, you may not really like talk to anyone about, you know, yeah. some kind of like obscure paper. But if I get something out of that, I'm like, oh, like this could actually like make a real difference to, to real people, then it's like, yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so eager to share that information. Yeah. I think that was, that was one of the things that kind of spurred me towards this, um, this area of, 
of sort of what's called like applied neuroscience where it's yeah. it's not necessarily you're not just stuck in a lab like i mean don't get me wrong there's cool stuff you know not to knock anything off of my experience working you know at the lab at oregon and and you know labs around the country you know are doing amazing awesome things with you know neuroscience and the brain but it's it's it can be a tedious process kind of you know with academia and and yeah. it can be hard to actually see your your hard work and your dedication um, kind of get reflected in in people's improvements and people's well-being um, and I think I'm, I'm guessing me me and you are kind of in similar boats with with that as you know one of the real rewarding parts of our of our jobs is actually being able to see this you know in your case medicine and in my case kind of the the uh, neurotechnology sort of stuff actually being applied and, and see people benefit from it yeah totally, totally. yeah super rewarding but I want to I want to talk to you about um, you mentioned you know the bioethics uh, this is a sort of a master's degree program you're pursuing now right starting just starting yeah you're just starting okay and bioethics so you know what uh I mean it sounds like um, kind of I mean obviously as a as a doctor I'm thinking you know or or just practicing medicine there's you know a lot of ethical you know you want you know your your doctor to be ethical right like the what is the the medical the, the medical uh what is it the the oath like to do no harm right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so obviously i mean it it seems kind of like a natural did, did it seem to you like that it was sort of a natural thing to do to pursue that, yeah. that program for me it was i mean i i've loved interdisciplinary work um since high school and then in college I did biology and humanities so I, I love places where there's an interplay um, of multiple disciplines so for me like going into medicine and then thinking oh wow you know I can study bioethics and bring in all the knowledge of the humanities and philosophy and then marry that with like applied science through medicine to me that was like that's totally right up my alley and I think I think having as many physicians as possible um, who feel qualified or who feel able to sort of spend the time with, with bioethics, then, you know, I think the better. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I was, I'm happy to be among those. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've got, I've got maybe what might be kind of a, a challenging, uh, potentially bioethic question for you, uh -oh. you know, um, and it's just more of a more general kind of question, but, you know, say, and, and we sort of talked a little off air about this, but, you know, as we're sort of, you know, developing, you know, so much better technology and, and practices and, and applying, you know, and treating patients um, and also learning so much about, you know, genes and, and uh, kind of gene environment interactions and, and epigenetics, which I, I am super fascinated with all that, um, but also learning, you know, kind of how some of our uh kind of um I mean you know, I, don't, I want I don't really want to use the word destiny but so, you know some somewhat of our of our life trajectory is is you know influenced if not kind of decided by genetics and when you get into these sort of cases where we're we're gaining more and more knowledge but then it uh kind of the ethical dilemma I think can often come up where it's like do you 
do you let the patients have access to to as much information as as kind of they want or is it do you feel a responsibility as kind of a medical provider to to sort of limit that to you know some some information maybe to either psychologically I'm guessing oftentimes like it would be it would be the psychological damage that could kind of you could kind of inflict upon a patient do you do you have any just kind of ways that you approach those situations do you do you let people make the choices or, or like to think that like people should have the choices for themselves or or do you think there should be some kind of like more kind of control um over that yeah control of control of knowledge is a great way of staying in power so i'm all for it um but uh i do think that i think that say you know this kind of comes up to an extent if uh, a patient is diagnosed with some illness um and then asking you know a patient how much they want to know about their illness um so whenever there's like knowledge that is known um moving aside like from the conversation about how much we can know to just like when we do know something i think that it's the responsibility of any clinician to understand the potential implications of of that knowledge for a patient um and then to lead that patient through a conversation um saying you know we have knowledge about x y or z you know mm -hmm. say your diagnosis there's a lot of information here some of it's difficult to understand some of it could be unnerving and to say like you have you can decide how much you want to know mm -hmm. because you respect the person's dignity and their autonomy mm -hmm. and saying like it's up to you about how much you want to know but as a professional as someone who does this kind of thing daily you know i've found that in my opinion people do better if they know x amount you know they know 50 percent about this or they know everything mm -hmm. about it you know so i think there's a role to be played in as kind of an editor of information or yeah. as someone who's kind of a guide to information mm -hmm. maybe um but obviously i do think that the patient should have control over how much they know i mean they can right. even say don't want to know anything which is a little unnerving sometimes it's like well i mean you should right some control <laughs> some control yeah that okay. and that, that's that's one thing it it bothers me when i you know hear people you know say like you know stuff about kind of not you know they, they sort of think that they don't have any control over maybe some kind of condition um you know that that they may actually have you know uh that the research has actually shown you know that they can actually make kind of epigenetic kind of changes yeah. and, and right. you know, turn on or off genes that, that may be associated with that, dis, you know, disease disorder. Um, and they're not necessarily stuck with that, that sort of fate. And I think that's, that's something especially that comes up um, when it comes to uh, um, psychiatry and, and brain sort of stuff. Because yeah. oftentimes people will kind of get slapped with the label of, you know, depression or anxiety. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be like sort of helpful for the person to be like, oh, like now I understand like why I've been feeling the way I have, like, and there's actually like a reason, you know, a kind of a, 
a chemical imbalance maybe, you know, going on in my brain. And it's sort of, I think for some people sort of validating, but then other times I think people sort of misread like the purpose of that kind of diagnosis. And they, they sort of, they, they come in, you know, fresh out of the psychiatry office and they sort of like, it's as if they're saying like, um, oh, I'm a, you know, 25% Native American, like, like, it's, it's if they did, you know, some, you know, um, genetic right. test, and like, they're like, oh, I guess I have anxiety, like, it, it, as if it's something that's, that's set in stone. Right. So, so I think, I think there is, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm the type of person where I'd like, kind of the maximum amount of control yes. over my fate. But at the same time, I, I understand that not everyone is maybe as interested in in their own biology or um, you know for whatever reason um, you know if they did have some kind of very serious disease where they were kind of predicting death you know um, where that could sort of complicate things as far as how much you'd want to know um, but yeah I think I think it's it's something it seems like just as humans like we're, we're we're just curious, you know, like as, as kids, we're, we're getting into things we're not supposed to, and, yeah. you know, playing with things we're not supposed to, you know, whatever. And it's, uh, it seems hard to think that, that people like patients would know that there is this information out there, that there may be something that, that, that they could at least know that may in some way help them better, you know, handle or, or deal with whatever, yeah diagnosis they have it, it's hard to imagine them being able to kind of go through life day to day being able to just push that you know right. sort of out of do you ever do you ever think about that like with people like and you're just like man like if I was them like I really would want to know right yeah yeah I <laughs> I definitely felt that I definitely felt that sometimes yeah because I, I likewise am a person who likes to maximize control over things and maximize the will aspect, the free will aspect, maximize the, you know, potential. Um, but, and, and I do think that that's a mindset that we should, like, encourage other people to accept. Like, the more control people accept over their own lives, um, the better, I think. But at the same time, I think one of the things that I run into with people is they've got like so many stressors and so many things going on and they just can't even, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's too much. So that's just mm -hmm. information that can't fit in their paradigm. Right. Um, so I think a lot of times like control, you know, control is kind of dependent on resources. So you know, some people don't have the resources to like, come, come to terms with their illness or something. That makes sense. And so I, I think, think part, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, you know, add that I think it's, it's really powerful that we at least have the, you know, whatever it is, if it's test results, um, you know, that, that are still available maybe whenever that person, if they ever come to a point right. where they're either, you know, kind of emotionally or, um, you know, where they're, where they're just ready to handle whatever it is, you yeah. know, they, they always kind of have that opportunity, right. To kind of go back totally. um, and get more information. Oh totally. yeah. 
that you know the doors the door is always open you know right phone lines are always on you know yeah have the conversation anytime i think that's that's a really good thing so i think providing that information at the same time with hopefully the resources to be able to deal with it you know Mm -hmm. there have been too many times where um someone's gotten a phone call like well they're driving home from work and someone says all right you have cancer you know i'll call you later about what we're going to do by mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that that kind of thing happens every day and mm-hmm. that in those ways i think that's a it's kind of an abuse it's it's kind of a psychological abuse and i think some of that comes from the a physician or a, some other kind of provider not recognizing the impact that this thing will have on someone maybe thinking like i need to make these 12 calls before i can go home mm. and one of them happens to be telling someone that they're diagnosed with cancer so i just have to hit these calls mm-hmm. um is we're all driven you know to keep on moving and to produce right you know so that knowledge without the resources to deal with it becomes destabilizing so i think Anytime that people can share knowledge with a, a framework in order to situate that knowledge, you know, I, th- I think that's that's what it's about. Um, right. Yeah, that that's an interesting thing to think about when it's yeah, like you know, like you don't think I guess about from the doctor's perspective, you know, if if they've had a long day and you know they're ready to be you know going home from work, and I think it's it's you know just kind of making it more big picture, you know, the, the, I don't know if you've seen any of the research, you know, kind of the psychological research about, um, you know, what's likely to happen as far as, uh, judge decisions in, in court cases and, mm-hmm. and how it actually varies, you know, by the time of day. So you're I actually heard a little bit about that once, but you're, go on. yeah, you're, 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 uh, the study I'm thinking of, and I think there may have been a couple, but, but basically looking at, you know, how, you know, your best sort of shot of, of I think, you know, if it was getting bond or, or just getting a better, you know, sentence or, or outcome, you know, was more likely early in the morning, you know, when the judge is fresh. Um, and then it, it sort of starts going down throughout the day, but then it goes back up at lunchtime. The, you know, the judge eats lunch, you know, they're back, you know, got a little more brain power going on. Um, and then, you know, they're able to kind of sustain that, uh, you know, for a little while, but then it comes to the end of the day. And then, you know, uh, what we think of as very like on, you know, unpartial kind of like fair decisions actually have so much to do just with like the mm. judge, like it's all about sort of the, the decision fatigue and, you yeah. know, our ability, we don't have, you know, endless mental resources to, to, right. you know, have willpower to, to think, you know, through all these things um so it's sort of at the end of the day they're just kind of like uh well i can't really fully think about this so you know Mm -hmm. you're getting a tougher sentence or whatever i'm not granting bond for you but you know i think about that when it comes to to doctors um i don't think it's as maybe well talked about um but just yeah i mean i would think you know just going through the day you're at the end of a long day and then you're supposed to call someone who and tell them this thing that's yeah. gonna change like it's not gonna ch- it may not change your life like you, you may be you know just getting ready to 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 drive home and you know go uh you know make some pizza or whatever but yeah. 
with them you're about to tell something they're not going to just go home and make pizza like they're yeah. that person you tell that they're that they yeah. have cancer to that person is like that's one of the, probably you know big maybe the biggest thing yeah. they've announcement they've heard in their life like yeah. that's a you you kind of take that on as sort of like a I, I would guess that you kind of do right as as sort of a responsibility where even if you are kind of fatigued or, or you know tired throughout the day like you you still sort of have that sort of responsibility to to not just go through and get your job done but to really you know provide the best kind of care for for patients that you can yeah i mean to me that that's one of those that is the ideal i think in medicine um as a profession that there is a that the best interests of the patient are kept above like personal interests as a physician, you know, and I think that's a differentiating factor in the field and thinking like, you know, we are all humans and to some, you know, but, and we're all, we're all in this together, but, and because of that, um, you know, it's, it's my duty to spend a little bit of extra time in this phone call or to spend a little bit of extra time and try to get this person into the office sooner to create that time, carve out that time to be human, to respect that dignity, to be emotionally available. But Mm -hmm. that's a demand that's really great. It's a, it's a huge demand. And so upon physicians or other providers to be able to care in that way. Um, And I think that's an ideal that, we need to hold ourselves to because I think that's central to what being a doctor in my case is about. Um, but it is something that, you know, I think some doctors aren't willing necessarily to take on. Um, and I think people suffer a little more because of it, but mm. I'm, I'm not there yet, you know? So right. you know, I've had long days in medical school, but I haven't necessarily had a long day when it was, you know, my decision. And when it's all on me, I'm carrying the weight and I need to get home. And, you know, you know, I haven't been there yet, but yeah, I want to set on a trajectory to be in the right place when I'm there. Right. Right. I guess all you can do is kind of best prepare yourself kind of for that potential unknown of, of what that actually is going to be like before you actually kind of walk a day in, in those shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it seems like something in the, the medical field where, um, doctors do seem to be more and more there's more and more pressure on them i think to to maybe see more patients you know to, to see as many patients and you know press in the times of, of those you know appointments um i mean i certainly you know as, as sort of just you know maybe wrapping up uh you know this really interesting discussion we've been having you know how 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 do you see you know kind of the you know say in the u.s you know with with the medical system obviously has you know, I mean, we certainly have, you know, a medical system that has saved, you know, tons and tons of people and, and is doing all crazy, awesome things. But at the same time, they're, you know, we, we've just kind of in the news lately, you know, they've been talking about like the, the different, like the state and local government, or I think it's the state governments like who are, you know, suing the, the opioid companies, um, you yeah. know, kind of in, in charge of the opioid epidemic and, you know, so obviously there's, you know, the, 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 the failures and successes of the medical system. Do you see, do you see anything 
glaring to you where, where you're sort of, you know, you come at it from sort of a fresh perspective where you're, you're newly witnessing all of this stuff. And do yeah. you, is there anything that just, you know, you've shown up and you're like, why do we do this this way? <laughs> Wouldn't it be better if we did it this way? Like, do you feel, do you have any strong feelings about that when it comes to the medical system here? Yeah. Um, I think, I think one thing, oh man, everything, everything is, um, there's so many, like the, it's one of those things where like the problem is such a complex like network of issues that the solution has to be this really complex network of issues. And so like no one congressional bill is going to be able to like knock all of them out and like, you know, fix everything. And so you're going to have to pick one of the issues. Right. Mm. And then when you pick one of the issues, you're neglecting the other issues that are also central to the problem because everything's interconnected. And so then the people who want one of those things to be the number one issue are going to start fighting. Anyway, so I think that's one of the things that impedes that impedes care. Um, mm. But, um, man, what's one of the glaring things? I think, I think maybe one of the most glaring things, um, I'm going to try to point a finger away somehow, um, <laughs> point a finger in a different direction than for me. But I think one thing that would be really valuable is um, providing more health education to the public in in some in some other form because i think there are a lot of things that people do because they think they're healthy um when they're not healthy and um, there are a lot of things that people could easily do to become more healthy that don't necessarily like jive with their idea of you know how to live life well mm-hmm. and the way to the probably the best way to communicate that is through like one-on-one relationships between a parent between a physician and a patient or an advanced care provider and a patient or a nurse and a patient. But there often isn't enough time in those interactions to cause that education to take place. So I think Mm. some form of education, whether that comes through grade schools, like putting in health curriculum courses Mm. um, beyond like, you know, when you get in later grades beyond like sex ed courses, like, Mm-hmm. just be a healthy person like these are things to do to be healthy um creating that is i mean that's part of the physical education curriculum to an extent but mm-hmm. I, creating that through schooling creating that like you know in daycares the dissemination of like healthcare teaching not just healthcare knowledge because you know you can put as much knowledge as you want out there but like you know, structured teaching and that education mm-hmm. is different. But yeah, it, it just reminds me. There's this. There's this quote I really love um, from Napoleon. I don't know if you've read uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. Um, I've heard of it. It was one of that kind of like OG self-help books. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and uh, one of the things in there, there's actually a chapter on this where it's like, uh, there's like the common saying that like knowledge is power. Like, mm-hmm. but but as you were kind of saying, like like you got to actually do something with that knowledge. So it's like his, his approach is that knowledge is potential power, that knowledge is sort of giving you the resources, but then you still got to 
you know, figure out how to act on those resources to actually make yeah. some kind of difference. Right. Right. But, um, yeah, I think to me, I'm, I'm the kind of person who takes a much more like there's kind of a systemic view of changes, but to me, like, and that's sort of where I'm going out with the educational thing, but to me in a less, much less interesting view is sort of the local view of how to change things. And to me, that kind of comes down to the kind of person we are or the kind of physician, nurse, advanced care provider, tech that you are. And, and I think the more we can do to kind of, you know, insurance companies and commerce and the economy don't want this, but the more, the more we can do to like slow time down for people who are experiencing things that are new for them, the more we can slow time down, engage considerately and thoughtfully, listen well, I think the better. And I think that kind of activity of trying to slow things down, of trying to listen a little bit more to the patient's concerns mm -hmm. and approach those directly, um, I think that will improve healthcare a little more because there's, there's definitely an impetus to just go fast, 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 find out what the problem is that sort of fits with what the patient's saying and then run tests on that and then give them a treatment option, give them kind of a menu of things that they can do about it, not really offer guidance, like, or just pick one for them and then just shuttle them through. Because the faster you can do that process, the more you can bill for things. And so the more the insurance company can bill and get money and then, you know, the economy just grows and balloons and whatnot. Right. Um, but um, the more you can kind of slow the process down so people understand what's going on and feel a part of the process, the more you get buy-in and the more people start to take control of their, of their health. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're always, you know, I don't think we'll ever get away from illness, but I think mm -hmm. the more we do that, the better. And I think that comes in your profession. I think that comes in, in everyone's profession, kind of, take an extra step yeah or create a little more relationship right no i think i think you're providing a you know an exemplary example of of doing that you know of, of acting that way and and you know i think once you get to, to actually become a a doctor you know i think you're gonna you know really lead the way when it comes to that so yeah. you know i think uh man you got you got big things to come in the future so yeah, i'm excited to to keep track of it and uh yeah definitely um you know it was a pleasure having you on the on the show today yeah is there you know i i ask people you know i don't know if there's any um whether it's a social media platform and obviously you don't have to it's like a, you know a personal thing if but if mm -hmm. if there is i don't know if there is any resource you want to plug um you know here's your chance <laughs> I think I think the uh, um, I don't necessarily have a have a resource, but if someone wanted to follow me on Instagram for the once or twice a year that I post something, okay, uh, it's my last name Wallencamp W A L L E N as in Nancy K A M as in Mary P as in Paul F as in Frank. I've said that on the phone like a thousand five thousand times in my life, but um, that would be my Instagram handle. Maybe eventually I'll write something and yeah. plug it again. But yeah, I don't know. The the thing to plug, if you want to read 
I'll plug someone else's work. Um, sure. Yeah. I think Atul Gawande um, is one of the best current health writers in the U.S. Um, I think another author, Danielle Ofri, O-F-R-I, I think, is she is another excellent health writer today. Um, they're both physicians who write about health. I've read their books and have been very inspired, so I'd recommend that to everyone. Awesome. I'll be yeah, curious no. uh, to check those out, too. Yeah. Yeah. A tool book, Being Mortal, is a very health, heartfelt conversation on, like, death and dying in, U okay. in American medicine. And Danielle Ofri's book, What Doctors Feel, is a very interesting book about what it's like to be a doctor, to have relationships with patients, the role of empathy. Things like that. Interesting. Interesting. Well, yeah. yeah, I look forward to giving those a read. Yeah. Sweet, yeah. man. Well, thanks again. Um, and uh, for people who want to follow the podcast, we actually uh, got a podcast Instagram now. It's Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. That is the, the Instagram handle um, all run together. So go check us out. Um, keep track of, of the new releases of the latest episodes. And uh, yeah, we'll try to, try to do one every couple weeks. So you can definitely stay tuned for that. So, Carl, again, it's been a pleasure, man. Toby, absolutely, man. Thank you so much for spending time with me. Absolutely.